Thoth Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello friends and listeners and welcome to a new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast, season 7, episode 17 and yes, this is going to be the last show of 2021. Wow, the year's over. Well, there is one more Sunday left next week, December 26, because today it's December 19, but that's, as the English call it, Boxing Day next week. It's Christmas and, well, your thought Hermes takes one week Christmas break, I think. It's also you who won't have much time during those days to listen to a new show. So we'll be back next year, next year, January the 2nd with episode 18, just to tell you right from the beginning, because some of you, I am told, are not listening right to the very end when I announced next week's program. So now you know it. Right, so my name is Rudolf. I am, as always, your host here, and I'm really happy to welcome you back to the show or welcome you for the first time if this is your first experience on the Thought Hermes podcast. My guest today will be Barbara Hantlow, very famous author. It's maybe a little excursion into the new age area, which we don't often do. I think it might even be the first time, but um, she has so much to say and it's highly interesting. And um, so I really am looking forward to this show. Uh, well, I said welcome back and uh, that's to all of you who have been here many times before. And those of you who are new to the show, please go to our website, uh, thoughthermes.com, that's T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com, uh, because there you find all kinds of things. You will find information about the podcast, about myself, you'll find all the past episodes, and it's more than hundreds that you can listen to with all the show notes. That's very important because in the show notes you always find information about our guests, about the music we play, and also links to important places where you can find even more information about those things. Right, and well, there you also find the possibility to answer me back, yes, to write a message to me because there is a contact form. You can even speak to me because we have a form where you can send voicemail to me here. And I'm always happy when I get that kind of feedback. So if you prefer a more classical way, you can also just write me an email at info at thoughthermes.com or go to Twitter or Facebook where we are also present. And maybe, maybe, not yet, but maybe next year, there will even be an Instagram account, right? Okay, have to decide on that. Don't know yet. Right, so, um, and also, I am also always very, very happy 
about your feedback. I need to know what you like, what you dislike about the show. If you have any ideas about some guests that you would like to hear here or, um, well, just let me know your thoughts on the Thoughts Hermes podcast via your feedback. That would be really helpful. And now you know what's coming. Yes, on the website, you'll also find that famous button. One is called Donate. The other is called Patreon. And well, thank you to yet two other people who have become patrons. And uh, I have 52 patrons now and uh, slowly, slowly growing and steadily growing. We need your help. We need some more of you. This is really important. Uh, next year is going to be costly. I'll have to replace my computer here because it's a workhorse and uh, will be six years old now. And I sometimes already see it's coming to its limits with all that we do here. Um, so um, please be generous. Become a patron with $1 per show. You're already a patron, and uh, if you prefer a one-off donation, we're also happy with that. Um, thank you for those of you who already are our patrons, and thanks to all of you who decide today, maybe as a Christmas gift, hey, that would be one, to become a patron for some time. Thank you. Well, music now. You know, I always play music on this show, and um, today I have returning guests as musicians. We've had... Uh, the hills and the rivers already on this show. They presented themselves here in episode 14 of season 4. So that was back in April 2020. And um, here they are back because I believe they are really nice street folk family band from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, their music just also fits somehow today's show. Um, the band was created in 2013. It's really family band. Um, the name The Hills and the Rivers really also comes from their names because it's the family Hill uh, who created that band. And um, so it's folk music inspired by uh, magic and witchcraft. I would call it like that. And so they really have become quite a name there. First CD was then released in 2016, and by now you can find quite a number of things on the internet, thehillsandtherivers.com it is, and uh, I'll post, of course, all of that also on the show notes of this show. You'll find it there. And uh, the first title that we hear them play today is, well, I think it fits very well for that kind of show like ours. The title is Magician. So enjoy the hills and the rivers from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and their song Magician.
The Magician by the Hills and the Rivers. Great music, I think, and very well fit, in my sense, to what's coming now, an interview with Barbara Handglow. Barbara has written many, many books, and uh, I'm sure that many of you have read about her, read her books directly. And i just give you a few names of the books. The Mayan Code, for example, The Return, um, sorry, The Awakening of the Planetary Mind, for example, or Astrology and the Rising of Kundalini, because she's also a very well-known astrologer. The Pleiadian Agenda, a very important book, and maybe my favorite of all, The Mind Chronicles, and I'm going to read you uh, a little excerpt from there in a moment. Um, and of course, then there is Castropho uh, Catastrophobia. Yes, Catastrophobia, that's an interesting book as well. And the trilogy, Trilogy Revelations, um, which gave the name to our subtitle to our show here today. And those revelations talk about the changing age, uh, the changing life on our planet and what we should do and beyond our planet, actually. You're going to hear all of that in a moment. She's an internationally acclaimed ceremonial teacher, an author, of course, and Mayan calendar researcher. And um, she has uh, uh, given us a lot of insight, I believe, uh, and she will today in this interview. I'm going to read a few lines to you from her book, The Mind Chronicles, which has a subtitle called a visionary guide into past lives. And it's an extraordinary, an extraordinary tale, a big tale of almost 500 pages. Uh, we talk about it in the, in the interview also a little bit about, yeah, well, into past, her past lives where she had sessions um, uh, for past life regression for personal transformation with therapist Gregory Paxson. And well, it's amazing how she did all that because it's long sessions, it's interesting. And when I read those texts, they are almost a bit like um, guided meditation to me sometimes. It is when I read those texts, I can try to imagine what she saw and that if you want, you can use that as a kind of path for your own guided meditation. I'll read you two paragraphs from her chapter two on that book, which is called The Priest of Osiris and the Druid. Well, let me just read you that text. I am riding in a small boat on a tributary of the Nile, approaching a small temple near Philae. I am male, and I wear a heavy headdress that has a coiled cobra over my forehead. I wear sandals and a wide leather belt that grips my linen loincloths. I sense energy in the Uraeus, the serpent of early creation just above my third eye. From another dimension I see red, yellow and gold stripes radiating out from the snake. Drifting far back in time, I read the hieroglyphics I indented deeply into my gold initiation bracelets. Running Eye of the Serpent The wind carries the grain and barley to the granary before the winter solstice. I am the master of the grain. The grain comes from the people. The grain comes from the sun. These signs are the signs of who I am. Osiris. I am coming here to make the energy connection to begin the cycle of planting and harvesting. If I do not connect the energy, the cycle in the kingdom will be broken. I step out of the boat and walk up the path to the stone temple. 
The entrance is about six feet high, while the temple inside is about 14 feet high. Everything is angular, sparse, and made of granite. The light is coming through a quartz crystal window above me on my left that is about a foot in diameter. There is a pyramid in the center that is about as tall as my thighs with an energy source at the top. It is almost the time for the sun to shine through the crystal above me on my left. I move forward to stand in front of the short pyramid and the light begins to illuminate the crystal. When the sun is in the bull, it shines through atop the pyramid like a laser beam. It's happening. The light forms a blue beam in the top of the capstone. Well, if you want to carry on, go to the Mind Chronicles chapter 2 and you'll find out more. Right, so now let's go, let's go to the US, let's go to New Mexico and meet with Barbara and Chloe in a fascinating talk about her life and especially her thoughts. Welcome Barbara and Chloe and you all enjoy. Here comes the interview. I am now very happy to welcome on the Thought Hermes podcast, Barbara and Chloe, who is, uh, I don't have to introduce her really to our audience. She is a very famous astrologer, book author. She has been uh, around for quite some time uh, with her uh, knowledge on the Mayan situation in 2012. Uh, the Mind Chronicles are one of her great books where a visionary guide into past lives, a lot of books and a lot of experience and life experience. And lately um, there was the third volume of a fictional trilogy which in my sense is of course only partial fictional it uses fiction to tell a lot of truth about uh, the world and uh, we're going to discuss all of this and i'm very happy to welcome barbara here today hello barbara very nice to have oh, you on the show hello <laughs> that's great to have you barbara um i just tried to sum up in uh, three or four phrases, a uh, 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 life full of experience. And I wonder if we can start our interview today by talking about yourself and from the beginning, so to speak. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit how you became the Barbara Hand Clow that we know today, where it all started uh, in your life with the encounters that made your life uh, what it then became yeah um we'll start really early um <clears throat> at age five and a half um mm. when i had a, a near-death experience or was abducted i'm really not sure which it was mm -hmm. i may have even been abducted younger than that by ext extraterrestrials but at five and a half i had a full-blown ascension experience into the higher um, planes of consciousness mm -hmm. and fortunately um, my grandfather my father's father uh, was uh, half cherokee and half welsh and he was an initiated um, cherokee record keeper which mm -hmm. means he was a cherokee teacher who kept um, track of the great long eons of time. 
And and my grandmother um, was, in her case, was Scottish and, um, and very much into magic and, and consciousness. And so when this happened to me, and it was, this is right after World War II, um, and our family was burgeoning, um, my parents and children and all that were just exploding. And my grandparents realized something was really wrong with me, that they could tell that I was um, becoming extremely disturbed. And I was. Um, because I couldn't understand what was happening with reality, especially after having such a high consciousness experience. And way up into the higher realms, way up into the realms of the Elohim, it was really quite extraordinary. So my grandfather had me come um, to their house um, about 10 miles away, um, three about three Sundays a month. And he started educating me, and he decided to pass the Cherokee record um, keeping, record teachings, uh, he's keeper of it. Mm -hmm. um, he decided to pass it um, to me and not to one of his daughters. He had three daughters and one of them was very eligible, very poetic and very magical. But he realized that given the teaching that he needed to pass on from his period of time, that his daughter would not be alive during this moment in time. Here we are in 2021. Mm -hmm. And so my grandfather uh, passed me these remarkable teachings all the way until I was age 17 and went away to college. And that's what started the whole thing, Rudolph. Right. Yeah. I saw that you were a Cherokee record keeper and I, I was going to ask you about that. So can you maybe um, tell us a bit more what exactly it means? You said it a little bit, but can you say that a bit in more more in-depth way? Yeah, the way it works in our tradition is the record-keeping um, traditions pass from a male teacher to a female teacher. Mm -hmm. So you notice my grandfather was thinking of his own daughter, but then he realized that I was the one he was supposed right. to connect it to. And now I've been passing it, passing it to one of my sons. And so, so the, the teachings are basically about, the, the, you know, a lot of it has to do with procession of the equinoxes, actually, and the changes of the great ages. And all of the major teachings about um, star uh, locations affecting different places on the earth, different temples on the earth that are basically in relationship to the stars. And it's the whole teaching of the rising of the ages and then going through the dark ages. Um, and it's just a, a very, very long period of time. And remarkably, um, it was very difficult to go into American education in kindergarten in the first grade mm -hmm. um, because everything I'd learned from my grandfather differed radically from what we were being taught in school. So conventional education was quite difficult for me. So what I did was whenever I had to learn anything that had anything to do with geology or history or phases of time, I just simply wrote the real information in the margins of my books. And so I kept the real story straight while I went through American education and in, in college. And that was very challenging, but I always kept like a double data bank. That sounds like a, a real talent you developed there because that must be, must be exhausting at times, right? It was exhausting. And I had to, you know, I had to really memorize a whole lot of stuff I didn't believe in just mm -hmm. to get through school. But a lot of people, you know, working in esoteric traditions do that. That is true. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe don't they, they don't see it that clearly as you say it now, but in a way they do it. You're absolutely right. 
Well, see, my grandfather was teaching me three three Sundays a month all the way through till I graduated from high school. Hmm. So he was watching really closely. And whenever anybody fed me a line of bowl, <laughs> he just sat down with me and just said, now let's talk about the real truth. And, and so the really remarkable thing about this, Rudolph, is I've only gotten absolute scientific verification of all of the things that he taught me in the last three or four years. And that's coming from Cherokee genetic studies, which are now moving into a really interesting um, phase at this point with some good researchers. And my grandfather said that there was a destruction in the um, Mediterranean and in the the, uh, area of Canaanite and stuff like, and places like that, Northern Egypt. Um, the Peloponnese. And my grandfather said there was gigantic destruction and our people migrated out of that region um, around uh, 3,000 years ago. And this completely contradicts the idea of where the Cherokees come from, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, yeah. Yeah, it does. And so we migrated out of the Mediterranean and to the to the Peloponnese to a place called Cyrene. And then we kept on migrating and migrating. And we finally found our way to North America and in my particular tribal background into the Carolinas. And so now at this point, um, Cherokee genetic testing is verifying that all that the people of these tribes, different Cherokee tribes, have all of these genes from the Mediterranean, from Egypt, and from um, the Holy Land, and so it's it's really exciting. Of course, I always believed in what he told me, and it was verified in many other ways. Like for example, I wrote a book called Catastrophobia, yes. which covers around twenty thousand years of human consciousness. That book is now called. Awakening the Planetary Mind. Um, the publisher mm-hmm. changed the title because I did a, a big revision of it in 2011. I'm going to get some right, uh, right. Oh. And I like the title Catastrophobia. I think the Spanish Hispanic version is still called that uh, that way, isn't it? Yeah, the, the the term for the syndrome Catastrophobia has held firm and uh, it's kind of too bad that uh, publisher changed the title at this point but mm. that's how it is in publishing yeah and so with catastrophobia we see that um we've gone through these recurrent cataclysms particularly twelve thousand years ago so during my period of college education and then becoming a publisher and i was a publisher for 20 years um a lot of those uh, catastrophic series were revised and they all went in the direction of what my grandfather said. Hmm. So I already had a lot of verification that he really knew what he was talking about. But then when it came to the actual migration of our tribal people, um, I, I, I even I was surprised to be able to get that level of verification. verification. And so the whole theory um, that nobody could cross the ocean in boats and everybody had to come over the Bering Strait, you know, the Clovis theory, all that stuff at this point is being radically revised mm-hmm. because there's a general awareness of, of, a, of a theory called diffusion, which means that the people of Europe also came across the oceans, which, of course, for anybody who studied any esoteric wisdom, it couldn't possibly be any other way. But mm-hmm. it's great to get the verification. Of course. Would that concern the general? American nation only or other nations as well? Oh, yeah, it's it's a it's a universal issue. Um, the idea that people didn't know how to use boats <laughs> is finally been put where it ought to be, which is on the stupid shelf. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, but okay, then you then you had become 17 or 18 when you finished school. But I think you made an academic career there for some time, right? Well, then I went to college, of course. Mm -hmm. So I don't know quite what you're asking. I finished my my public, you know, my high school education yeah. when I was 17 and then went on to college. Mm hmm. And and in in what field did you you became a publisher at some point? But was that already at the moment when you were writing your own books, or was that not yet linked to the fact that you're becoming a publisher? Well, um, the first first book that I wrote, I I met my husband um, Jerry Clow. We've now been married forty nine years, hmm. and he was looking for he was an acquisitions editor for Little Brown in Boston. And so he met me and persuaded me to um, write my first book, which is called Stained Glass, A Basic Manual. And that came out in 1976. And then Jerry and I went on and had a couple of kids. And then I started going stark raving mad um, with little children at home. So I went to graduate school. And um, I went to graduate school with Matt. I had gone to college before that, but I left that out. But I went to graduate school with Matthew Fox, um, the theologian. Okay. And um, in Matthew Fox's um, program, I, I studied theology. And this is the background, actually, for a major character in the book we're talking about, Revelations from the Source. Okay. The major, major background for the character, um, Sarah. Sarah, um, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm getting some more tea. Voice wants to give out today. <clears throat> so I finished my master's degree. And then Matthew Fox, meanwhile, um, had a little publishing company in Santa Fe called Baron Company mm -hmm. that he had started a couple of years ago with a couple of priests who were basically failing at the job. Mm -hmm. So he hired Jerry and me. Jerry had been working at Rand McNally in Chicago, and I had been in graduate school. And we took our whole family, moved to Santa Fe, and took over Baron Company. And then at that point, Jerry and I worked um, with Baron Company for 20 years. Right, right. And Baron Company, which is now part, I think, of Inner Traditions and, and the, right. the, right. the, the, the whole bunch. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Okay, but let's go back to your to your um, career as an astrologer, maybe we should call it. What would you call yourself when you would have to give yourself a, a title for what you are? What would you put first? What would be the main character of yourself? Well, um, I thought of myself as a researcher and a left brain writer and a mm -hmm. publisher. Mm -hmm. But then the Pleiadians came to me this back in 1994, 1995. And I started to realize that what I really was, was a spiritual teacher. Mm -hmm. Now, at that time, I also was doing medicine work in um, New Mexico, running a new moon clan and different things. And um, I was already doing some spiritual teachings, but it's really when the Pleiadians came to me that I realized I had a spiritual calling. Now, I have so, to, you have to hold on for a second here. My mm -hmm. audience here, we are all a very well educated in, I believe, in the occult teachings, in, in classical um, ritual magic, uh, all, all those stuff, you see. Um, but of course, um, 
we are going a bit on the fringe for this podcast by talking to you. So you have to help us uh, with Pleiadians and Chiron and this terminology. I personally, I know it quite well, but if you could just go a bit further in explanation to the audience, what exactly you mean by that? Yeah. Well, what it goes back to is when I was a little girl studying with my grandfather, he explained to me that I was from the Pleiades because the Cherokee people and many Mayan, uh, Mayan people and Aztec people, different um, indigenous cultures believe that they come from the Pleiades. Mm -hmm. So I've always just been comfortable with that idea. It was like a sense of, I guess, a sense almost of, of my childlike self. And so when they appeared in, in this case, it's very, it's very funny, Rudolph. Um, I was getting a tan in a tanning bed um, because I had to go down to um, Guatemala and I had to be in the sun for like five hours mm -hmm. a day, had to protect my skin. So I was in this tanning bed and this voice came through and this Pleiadian being announced herself. Her name is Sacha. And she proceeded to tell me that, that I was going to, to receive her teachings and, and give them, which is yeah. what I did eventually in a book called The Pleiadian Agenda, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, A New Cosmology for the Age of Light, which, by the way, is introduced by a cosmological physicist, mm -hmm. speaking, of being, mm -hmm. um, speaking of these ideas being accepted. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very, very common on the planet Earth to talk to indigenous people and they say that they're from the Pleiades. Now, I don't know what that means, whether it means that I came from there a long time ago. All I know is my consciousness partic participates in Pleiadian um, mm -hmm. intelligence. Mm -hmm. And so then when this material came through, <clears throat> which I did not understand myself, it involves... Um, nine dimensions of consciousness, quantum mechanics, string theory. It's a very, very scientific body of material. Absolutely. And so I didn't even understand it myself. Once the material came through me, and then the question is, how did I get the material? I channeled it. I gathered a group of people who had the ability to ask questions about the subject matter that I'd been receiving. And I did 18 sessions um, in an altered state with this group of people. They were tape recorded. And that material became the Pleiadian agenda. Okay. And I did not change any of the material except to get rid of, you know, just get rid of glitches and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. A lot of the material that came through from Satya contradicted the current um, scientific uh, uh, beliefs about different scientific issues. And so once the book came out, different areas of science started falling into line with what I had actually received from this being, Satya. Mm -hmm. So I started chronicling it. I started teaching it. And I started keeping track of it because piece by piece, dimension by dimension, Science was shifting into the same conclusions that the Pleiadians had brought in, which really impressed me. And so then in 2004, 10 years later, I wrote a book called Alchemy of Nine Dimensions. And yeah. Alchemy of Nine Dimensions is a scientific analysis of a channel book. And I think it's probably the only one that I've never, I've never heard of anybody else do anything like this. And it's a wonderful book. And I consider the Pleiadian agenda and alchemy of nine dimensions to be the part of my work that's most authentically mine, 
So you, what you were asking a while ago is, who am I really? Well, really, my identity just shifted um, into a whole new way of existence when that material came in. And that is really the part of it that's really my teaching. Which years are we talking about when the Pleiadian agenda came out, for example, or you had those experiences? Mm -hmm. Well, what I'm talking about is the basis of both books is that we as humans are capable of accessing nine dimensions of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And we're in the third dimension, 3D, linear space and time. So that's just the third dimension. But the first dimension is the iron core crystal in the center of the earth, which is in vibrational resonance, uh, resonance with all of the other bodies in the universe, galaxies, solar systems, planets, stars. And then the second dimension is the telluric realm, which is the realm of consciousness between the iron core crystal and the surface of the earth. Then we're in the third dimension in linear space and time. Yeah. And the fourth dimension is the realm of the collective mind, the realm of the collective unconsciousness and, and consciousness. And it's the realm of our reality, which is very emotional, which is almost palpable, but it's not physical the way the third dimension is. And the fourth dimension is the most complex dimension for us as humans. And it's the dark and the light. And um, it's the polarities and dualities of reality because reality splits in the fourth dimension. Can that fourth dimension be compared to what C.G. Jung, for example, explained about common consciousness? And, or is that very different from his concept? Um, who, who is that? Uh, Carl Gustav Jung, the psychoanalyst uh, who... Oh, you, know, I see, you said Jung. Um, yes. Yeah, the fourth dimension, Jung has defined the fourth dimension the, 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 by the best of anybody. Um, okay. Very, yeah. Right. So then the fifth dimension is the realm of the heart. And what happens is after we go through um, like a Jungian analytic journey into the deepest level of self, we integrate ourselves and we start to move into the heart. And then the heart expands into the sixth dimension, which is sacred geometry. And then the sacred geometry keeps expanding because it, 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 it transforms into sound. And so the seventh dimension is sound. And then the eighth dimension is the realm of the divine. And the ninth dimension is time. Now, this is a very very different um, de definition of dimensionality. And I have found through the years that it's incredibly illuminating. And so the easiest way to see it is to go in the other direction. In the ninth dimension, we receive a sense of what we are doing in our lives and in time, the agendas. Then in the eighth dimension, those agendas go into the divine mind. Then the divine mind transmits information to us through sound Hmm. Then the sound formulates into geometry. Then the geometry formulates into love. And then the love vibration comes to us in the third dimension through this complex experience we have with the collective unconscious as well defined by Jung. And then we go down into below our bodies, into the earth, and then into the central core crystal of the earth. So that's what that body of material is. And it's a very different 
definition, although a lot of people could say it's a lot like the Kabbalah. Um, it, I, think <laughs> I, was, I was going to ask you if this has any yeah. relation to the Kabbalah. Yes. Yeah, I had never run into the Kabbalah. I think I almost avoided it because I sensed what was coming through me. And so, yeah, there is a resonance and there is, you know, with all of the great spiritual um, teachings, if they're authentic, there are major, major ties and connections that teach all of us many, many things. The thing that I think is wonderful about this system is that it's such a complex explanation of what actually happens to us on the earth. Mm. And the earth, after all, is where we live. For instance, at this point, the definition in the Pleiadian agenda of the telluric realm, the realm of microbials and the realm of viruses and the realm of chemicals. Well, right now we're living in a period when the second dimension is very, very riled up, which is the reason we're having so much stress in the third dimension. Mm -hmm. And I think this body of material gives us amazing information about how to handle some of the difficulties that we're living in the middle of now. You you mean from up down? You, we could we we could work on those problems, or or from the upper dimensions down to the lower ones. Oh yeah, you can go from the upper ones very right down into the central core crystal of the Earth. Mm -hmm. The central core crystal of the Earth is very interesting because it's the place where the akashic records are located, mm -hmm. and it actually functions at a very very high hertz frequency. It it vibrates at between 40 and 100 hertz in the very central core of the earth. Mm -hmm. And then that vibration of the earth itself is vibrating, as I said earlier, to the centers of all of the other centers in, in the universe, the galaxies, the uh, solar systems, the stars, etc. And so that iron core crystal is actually the source of the highest knowledge that we actually have on this planet. And another issue that we're facing right now, Rudolph, which is really coming to a crisis now, is the whole issue of extraterrestrial contact mm -hmm. and our involvement with intelligences in other realms. This is very quickly now escalating into a crisis for all humans on this planet. And of course, only some are aware, others aren't aware. But the idea of this would be that that extraterrestrial intelligence is actually available to us in the core of the earth. And boy, there's a whole lot of information here about how to meditate, how to make contact. For instance, it implies a very high Hertz frequency where most meditators feel that they should reduce their Hertz frequency as low as possible, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I find speeding up that Hertz frequency is the key to a lot of the information we need to get now. Okay, because you're right, when you do training like brain waves or deep meditation, it's all to go down to the beta and, and alpha status or theta status almost, mm -hmm. uh, and, and which, and, but you're saying kind of the opposite, right? Well, it's another, it's a different kind of information that you okay. could get in, in those slower frequencies. For instance, how can you relax enough so you can feel like a human being? You know, mm -hmm. I certainly wouldn't advise anybody going around in high Hertz frequency all the time. Yeah, but, sure. you know, but I find that when I'm really moving energy and really contacting 
you know, and really very high mental frequency and even higher than that. Um, those high hertz frequencies are a critical part of this. Okay. You have to help me with terminology now, because as I said, I am not as firm in this as in the hermetic world, for example, right? But um, lately what I observe when we talk about extraterrestrial contacts, um, this is less like it used to be in the 1960s or 70s when people had those physical encounters with extraterrestrial entities, but it's more it seems to be more on a on a spiritual level or at least on a mind level those that those contacts are being looked for um am i right with that i think it's also called slightly called slightly different um but am i right with that and is that what you are speaking about or are you talking really about physical contact no i I'm, i'm really glad you went to this because i think things have improved for us humans a lot Because in order to break through in the early stages, um, these intelligences and these beings, whoever they are, other maybe they're other dimensional. I don't really think that I yeah. understand who they are. But when they first tried to break through to us, as far as I'm concerned, it was very crude. And then meanwhile, we kept advancing our own consciousness as we really have. By the way, this is a, a real testimony to how much many people have actually raised their intelligence and their frequencies in the last 20 or 30 years. Okay. And so now a lot of the contact, a lot of the contact is much more spiritual. Mm-hmm. And I'm more open to that. I, unfortunately, I shouldn't say unfortunately, because whatever happens to us in our lives is what's you know, meant to happen to us. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've I've adjusted well to happen what's happened to me, but I had an awful lot of early extraterrestrial contact. And now my, my resonance is very spiritual and much, much easier, much more comfortable. And so you're saying that those contacts that, that you also warning of, um, they will also be more in the spiritual level, also with other people, not just with you, but with, with a lot of other people. Well, I don't, didn't understand that exactly. No, I, I meant um, you said that people have developed in a way that the contact with extraterrestrial entities will be more and more on the spiritual level, right? Yeah, it seems to be going in that direction. I certainly yes. hope so. Yes. And then I also think, this, this isn't what I think, this is what I feel. Um, we're in trouble on this planet, and even I can't see a whole lot of ways out of the, the you know, the holes we've kind of dug ourselves into. Mm. And I think extraterrestrials are very, very anxious to reach us and guide us. And I think more and more people are more open to attempting to receive guidance because people can see how much trouble we're in. Mm. It's, it's how, you know, back, go back to the 1950s. Everything was great, right? Everything was easy. Lots of food, nice place to live. Well, things are changing now. Yeah. And we, we are responsible for big, yes. big bunches of that. Absolutely. And why, that's always a question that, that um, intrigues me. Why do you think that those extraterrestrial entities would be interested in us? Why, why the Earth? Why is the Earth so important to them? Well, that's an interesting thing because this is where the Pleiadian agenda material gets really interesting. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I just like to say, since I've just finished 
this trilogy. And today we're going to be talking about revelations from the source that, that, that's supposed to be the topic. Yeah, we're going to get there. Yes, absolutely. Wonderful mm. time. It's fine. But um, I'm working out the ideas I'm talking about in the Pleiadian agenda in fiction and through characters who are experiencing some of the things that I'm, that I'm talking about. And so that made me lose my my thread. What, where was what was your question? Well, the question was why are extraterrestrials interested in in our planet? And you said the Canadians okay. gave Thank you a kind of explanation for that. Yeah. Thank you. One of the central teachings in the Pleiadian agenda and alchemy of nine dimensions is that if one dimension goes out of form, everything collapses. Mm-hmm. And this isn't just the Earth. This is the universe itself. Right. And if you think about sound creating geometry, which we see so easily with um, crop circles, of course, you can see that if the sound went away, nothing would be created. It, it's like the word of God is what cre- creates reality. Mm-hmm. So the central teaching here is that if any dimension goes out of form, the, the whole ladder of dimensionality um, is, is, is going to just be destroyed. Okay. And by the way, there's a project that's been coming out of um, Switzerland called the Blue Brain Project that you may have heard about, where scientists are uh, creating um, uh, topological um, drawings for the dimensional functioning of the human brain. And they have discovered that the human brain functions in 9 to 11 dimensions, as, as in superstring theory. And by the way, the Pleiadian agenda has two more dimensions. But what they're concerned about is the ones that we as humans can be in contact with. So that's why they use nine. And so um, with the Blue Brain Project, it, it's showing that our brains actually function dimensionally, which communicates to me that the frequencies that create everything that exists are functioning in a, in a dimensional way, if you see what I mean. Absolutely. So when you look at it that way, then if one dimension goes out of form, then everything collapses. Well, the teachings in the Pleiadian agenda seems to suggest that the Earth is the location for physicality at this time. Mm-hmm. In, in other words, they seem to be suggesting that the thing that is unique about the earth is our physical dimension. That third and dimension, you mean? The third, linear mm-hmm. space and time. Well, yeah. then it, it, it's the third dimension includes the second and the first, because of that's course. how yeah. Yeah, it's the planet itself. And so it, 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 what I get from this material is that we're on the verge of literally exploding what the earth is and what these three dimensions are into the universe itself. In other words, on some level, we're at a point now where we're going to be involved in actually seeding the universe. And so then all these other intelligences operating in different dimensional forms are going to be participating in something that they haven't really participated in. Mm-hmm. They seem to be non-physical and they seem to be operating in some other way. Right. But they are exposed to what we damage, so to speak. Well, they're very concerned um, Mm. because look what's happening. I mean, I know you're concerned and I'm concerned. We're at a real, real crisis point at this point. And I think that the communication 
with beings in other dimensions is part of the solution. It is really wonderful to have Barbara on this show. Um, I find what she has to say really interesting. It's a bit different from what we usually hear on this show, um, but I believe it is, will be interesting to many, many of you to hear all that. And uh, well, if you are also off for a, a good read, I wouldn't call it an easy read at all. It's uh, you have to rather to get into the stuff um, because it's it's uh, of course very esoteric, very uh, special. Her Revelations trilogy is really worth it. But the newest book that came out um, just appeared. Um, if you would do it right way, start with the first the Revelations of the Ruby Crystal and go through the three books. I think it's really worth to get the whole story from the very beginning. But whatever, whatever you decide. So it's time for some music again, right? The hills and the rivers are back. Yes, the family hill and the whole company from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And now the next song that we are going to hear by them will well, is called Middle Garden. Very nice music. I really love that. So you know what's coming. It's now Middle Garden, as I said. And uh, immediately after that second musical piece, we'll go back to Barbara and continue speaking about the fascinating thoughts that she has. And um, at the end of the interview, so a bit uh, oh, around 32 minutes later, there will be the third piece of music for today, the third and last peak by the hills and rivers. And that one, the last one, is called The Hawk and the Dove. So, Middle Garden, now then Barbara Hanklow again. And at the end, there will be The Hawk and the Dove. And after The Hawk and the Dove, of course, as usual, I'll be back to, well, not announce next week, but say a few things about next year, probably. Okay, so now listen to Middle Garden and enjoy. Yeah. 
before we now go to the to the tr trilogy, I promise we'll go there very soon. Mm. But I would like to hear you a little bit on another particular book that I got myself. Um, I first got the revelations from the source, you know, that's what I was sent from inner traditions. And I looked into the book, say, I can't read that book without having seen the two first volumes. So I got myself the two other volumes and I read them. Well, but, you and you're right. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I wanted also to have a look. I, I cannot say I have read them all because it wouldn't have been the time. But the mind chronicles were important to me as well, because because this is it's such a dense book about your personal experiences and it's so vast and so uh, extraordinarily um, complete right so i have to ask you before we go into the trilogy how did you accomplish all those um travels let, let's put it bluntly travels into past lives right this these experiences are from past lives how did you manage to do them all um in such a concentrated and dense way. How, how did that happen? And, and thank you for bringing this up, Rudolph, because I think this is one of my finest works. Hmm. Um, and um, I did, it's simple. I did 100 sessions um, under hypnosis into my past lives. And may I ask how much time that took you? I mean, each, just physically. Each session, yeah, each session was two to three hours long. Hmm. And then, of course, they had to be transcribed so that I could work with them on my computer. Um, but the, where this came from, back, back to, to Carl Jung, who you mentioned um, a while ago. Mm -hmm. um, when I was in graduate school, when I decided to go, I, I decided to get a master's in theology. But what I didn't want to do is I didn't want to waste any time. I'm not famous for wasting time. So I got Matthew Fox to agree to let me do a comparison of between Jungian psychoanalytic theory and past life regression under hypnosis. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason that I wanted to do that was that so few people can afford a Jungian a psychoanalytic um, mm. uh, process, two or three years of analysis is very expensive. Yes. And time consuming. And in my case, I was, I almost became a Jungian analyst before I went to graduate school. Um, okay. But I decided not to do it because of the difficulty of the average person being able to afford it. So I came up with the idea that I could get, uh, I could acquire the same level of depth about the collective unconscious by doing sessions under hypnosis into my past lives. And it's not just my past lives. <clears throat> I also was time traveling into the minds of a lot of people. Exactly. That, that's what I find so extraordinary about yeah. that book. Yeah. Yeah. So you can travel into the minds of, of any, anybody in, not anybody in the past. Sometimes there's blocks, but basically you can travel into the minds of people in the past. So where I got all that material was 103 hour sessions. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, and then you sat down and had to write them down and kind of also put them in a way that is digestible because it's an extremely interesting book. I mean, as I said, I didn't have the time to read all 500 pages uh, yeah. by, by now, but it's what I read yeah. was really extremely powerful. Yeah. And then those illustrations, those are by the um, yeah, beautiful who did medicine cards. Yeah. And no, they're, they're, really beautiful. they're beautiful. They're just absolutely beautiful. So it's just, it's a, thank you for bringing it up because it's a beautiful piece of work. Absolutely. And really it, it helped me. And now we're going uh, into the trilogy. It helped me also to understand the trilogy better, I think. 
right? Because, um, um, well, it made me understand probably your work better. And, and uh, that was essential for me to, 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 to get deeper into, into the Revelations trilogy, right? What made you, before we talk about content, but what did you, what made you decide to write fictional works? It was the first fictional works that you, that you started writing, right? Yeah, you could say that Mind Chronicles is almost a fictional work. Oh, yeah, game, well. Even I, though, yeah. you know, the data came from um, sessions. Mm -hmm. it's, very, it's very much like, like reading fiction. But um, I wanted to write fiction my whole life. I didn't mm -hmm. really want to write nonfiction. But I knew that I couldn't get published in fiction because I wanted to write really good fiction, great mm -hmm. characters, great historical background. And during the time that I would have been publishing fiction. It was a time in the States of just trashy stuff, you know, violence and ugh, horrible crimes and just terrible writing as far as I'm concerned. So I went into nonfiction um, in order to succeed. And then when I hit age 70 in, uh, night, I guess, 2010, something like that, I decided it was time to do what I wanted to do, which mm -hmm. was write fiction. And so that's why I switched. But I also switched because I wanted to, to describe nine-dimensional consciousness in fiction. In other yeah. words, I, I wanted to get a group of characters together who go through a phase of time, um, who are functioning in many, many dimensions, in order to help the reader start to experience multidimensional consciousness. Because I think that... The beings that are trying to communicate with us, the extraterrestrials and other dimensional beings, whatever, I think that they are trying to get through to us to help us become more multidimensional. Because once you become more multidimensional in your life and in your outlet, outlook, you're not going to destroy the planet. Mm -hmm. The reason that people are destroying the planet is because they have tunnel vision. They can't see out of 3D. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, they're unable to for the most part, aren't they? Yeah. Hmm. And, and if you can see beyond that limited point of view, people are going to change and we're going to have to change. And that's exactly, if I may say that, that's exactly the, 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 the level where, for example, the tradition that I'm more uh, acquainted with, uh, hermeticism, uh, uh, ritual magic, etc., uh, meets absolutely what you are saying and your experience and your work, because that's exactly the, that, that going further into a next dimension is exactly the path that we're all going if we try to get that um, um, spiritual way, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Mm. And so it took, it took, you know, really intelligent characters. And that's what's been really fun. Um, mm -hmm. be, because I couldn't convey the, the, this level of consciousness and this level of thought with a bunch of just really ordinary people. <laughs> so, so the people of um, the characters tend to be aristocratic and have a lot of time. Um, and there it takes place mostly in Italy just because of the qualities of Italian culture. And, um, so there's a full range, you know, an artist, a, a, yeah. a, 
New York Times reporter. There's a full range of intelligent people and also three generations. You almost gave me the explanation. I was going to ask you that because maybe that struck me because I'm European, but I was struck by the fact that this takes place in Italy, in those beautiful cultural surroundings we all love, I guess. And you really describe them with great love and detail and and it's very important it seems very important of how people dress up and how their habitats look like and what they do with them so uh, is that the is that the reason that you just gave um, because you you wanted to show us how important that is well that's a good that's a good question um what ha what happened rudolph was um there i was in 2011 And I decided, okay, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to write fiction. So I sat myself up in my writing room and, um, and just said, okay, I need guidance here. How am I going to do this? Pleiadians came through. Like, and like they're such great. It's, you know, think of the Pleiadians as my muse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it, I think we all have a muse. So my sure. muse came in and my muse said, okay, get out of a couple of, of yellow legal pads and some pens and write it all down. So on, in May of 2011, the, the guide, the guides, the muse, the Pleiadians um, gave me the names, ages, um, background material, careers, the full range description of each one of the characters, except for two. And I'll mention those later. Mm -hmm. But they brought in these characters, um, page after page after page of data. And about 80% of them had, had Italian names. <laughs> and the other two that came in later had Italian names. So clearly, this had to be located in Italy. And lucky for me, I love Italy. I particularly love Tuscany. You, so can, you can tell when you read that. <laughs> <laughs> so this was my chance to go back um, and spend a lot. We had spent a lot more time in Italy than Tuscany. Mm -hmm. yeah, and, yeah. Um, and then the, uh, there's another issue altogether. Are you familiar with the work of Carl Johann Kalamon on the Mayan calendar? Um, a little bit. Not familiar would be too much. Heard I've that. heard about it and yeah. Yeah. Well, according to Kalamon, there's a midline that goes through um, Africa and through Italy and up through Germany and up through Sweden, 12 degrees east longitude. Exactly. And you and, mentioned that in the book, in the trilogy. Yeah. And so according to Kalamon, the whole working out of the struggle between east and west converges on that midline. And so having read a lot of Italian literature in the past, I already noticed there were all sorts of strange things about Italy, particularly Rome. There was such a tendency for things to converge there. And so I also decided to set it in Italy because of that. And then lo and behold, in 2019, COVID hit Italy first and hit it hard, mm. which was amazing the way that worked into the plot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I didn't know in 2010, you know, that COVID was going to come along in, in uh, 2020. None of us did. Yeah. Well, um, let's go back to the first volume first, because you just talked about the, the Mayan calendar and so that. And I have to, to have you to speak about the Mayan side of your thought as well, because it plays an important role, especially in the first volume uh, mm -hmm. of the trilogy. And it plays an important role in your personal 
spiritual life, if I'm right. But you're also a Mayan elder, I read. So maybe you can explain yeah. about that. And yeah. how did you how how did that fit into your whole way of living and thinking? Well, once this Pleiadian material came in and I went to this kind of a quantum leap, really, in terms of what I was doing on the planet, then <coughs> um, I started teaching all over the world. And I was teaching in, in Mexico and in Guatemala and Sweden, all over the place. And I was doing ceremonial work in all of these places. So I was going from location to location and as a spiritual leader, meeting with the other spiritual leaders and teachers of that region. And then we would create ceremony and activation for people. So the, where the Mayan material comes from is, first of all, the Maya and the Cherokee are very closely associated. Um, are, are really, we're so closely associated, I sometimes can't tell the difference. So it was extremely natural to start working with um, Mayan people in Mexico and Guatemala, which is mm -hmm. what I did. Okay. And the Mayan calendar issue came out of that, right? Well, yeah. So then there's this issue of so many sources saying that we were coming to some kind of end of time or end of the world or whatever in 2012. And so as a publisher, um, I published a lot of the sources on 2012 and the end of the calendar. We published Jose Arguez and John Major mm -hmm. Jenkins and Palmer, all kinds of people. And so I was very involved in the whole issue of what did the Mayan calendar mean? How would it change us? And what I'd like to say, speaking of your feeling that there may be quite a few listeners where I'm kind of from outer space and they can't believe what I'm saying, I think almost anybody who wants to go back to 2011 or 2012 will immediately realize that something really did change. Um, yeah. The way the media treated that was disgusting, as usual, though the media is terrible anyway. Of course. And, you know, something really changed in our world. And so yeah. I've been, you know, preoccupied with that all the way through my work. I'm still preoccupied with it um, in terms of what that, that uh, change means. Um. Also, and that's another point regarding the trilogy, of course, that change goes is very tangible throughout those three volumes, right? The change, it's as it does in our real life, it's speeding up also in the book. Um, uh, it, it involves a number of, of, I don't want to give away too much because people should read those books, but um, it, it involves a number of issues, be it the Middle East, be it the Vatican, be it all kinds of, of other issues that evolve very, very deeply and very, and that speeds up. And that's also our reality today. So when you finished this trilogy, did you feel it will become a tetralogy at some point or is, is that it for you uh, or are you waiting for a next step yeah. to happen to write the fourth book on the trilogy? Yeah, really, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, I'd like to see this trilogy well enough accepted so that I feel there are a lot of readers out there who are following it. And I'm bringing that up because as you and I have discussed from the beginning of this talk, this is complex material. Definitely. And I'm famous for being way ahead of my time. I'm an Aquarian, and I'm just famous for, for figuring something out a couple of years ahead. Mm. And so then what happens with my work is people catch up with me over time. 
And so now that all three books are out, and the first one came out in 2015, um, certainly you would agree that the first book, uh, Revelations of the Ruby Crystal, is perfectly comprehensible to anybody. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, and then what happens in a, the Revelations of the Aquarian Age, it gets more complicated. It's making more demands on the reader in terms of the way time is unfolding. And then when we get to Revelation from the source, we're dealing with a really esoteric. It, it probably time. needs a bit more faith in the esoteric current that you're describing. Pardon? It probably needs a bit more faith or uh, uh, believing in the esoteric current that you are using to describe the story, right? Well, it, it's pretty advanced from a hermetic point of view mm -hmm. um, through the character Lorenzo Giannini. Now, yes. Lorenzo Giannini is a, a Jungian analyst, and he's the most famous um, anal analyst in Rome. And he's a wonderful, wonderful character. Mm -hmm. But when we get into Source... And he's starting to go to really high levels of time travel and integration of past lives and even ceremonial teaching. Yeah. And then his partner, Claudia, of course, is a very, very good astrologer. And that was that was a hard thing to decide for, for me um, okay. to decide to include astrology because I have not. In, in, I've written astrology books, but I don't put astrology in my books normally because I know how resistant people are to it. <laughs> but the astrology during 2020 and 2021 is of such an unparalleled intensity that I decided the basic paradigm had to go in. And yeah. we're, in, we're in the middle of transits right now that haven't occurred for 735 years. Um, as we emerge out of the dark ages and start to move toward the Renaissance. And so I think a kind of basic understanding of the intensity of the astrology is useful from two points of view. First of all, I think more people ought to know about it. And maybe more importantly, it's about time for people to realize that the global elite uses astrology to control the world. Mm. So there's a, there's a sub-theme running through all these books about the change of the ages, moving out of the age of Pisces and into the age of Aquarius. And then also, as we get into source, we start to see that people who are actually able to control the world, people like Bill Gates or, or Jeff Bezos or Ellison, these people use astrology. So does the queen, the Pope uses it. Everybody uses astrology. Mm -hmm. And the ordinary person is the dumb dodo who doesn't get it. And I think it's time to wise up. Mm. Interesting. Um, I, I have a personal question. I mean, I need a personal explanation from you. That's what I mean. Uh, of course, we all know the, the, what you just said, that we are moving from, from, the, from the area of Pisces into the age of, age of Pisces, into the age of Aquarius. Um, but... Um, so much has been said and read and written and uh, about that. But how do you personally see that transition? What does it for by your experience and by your foresight imply? Well, of course, the book is showing the way it's shifting. It's showing hmm. the issues of Pisces and how they're ending and then how we're going to into Aquarius. And But what I didn't get into was I didn't get deeply into what the age of Aquarius is going to be, because I don't think we know yet. But we do know one thing. The age of Aquarius is ruled by the planet Uranus. 
And the planet Uranus is the planet of, re of revolution, radical change, and also technology. So anybody listening to this can see the early elements of the age of Aquarius coming in with artificial intelligence and smartphones, etc. I don't even need to list all of that stuff. And so I think that the degree to which people attempt to look at the kind of technology that we're being led to use, because uh, that's the plan. And I think people need to really seek out ways to maintain their personal integrity and personal freedom in the middle of this shift into a more technological age, because I don't see how we're going to avoid it. And I thought um, Dan Brown did a good job with that in, in, in a recent book that he wrote about, um, about technology. And um, it's not going to go away. It's all a matter of us using our free will to make choices about that. And so this is where the whole uh, situation with vaccinations and the Great Reset, it reset is such a critical issue. And by the way, the term Great Reset, that's an astrological term. And really? they took... Yeah, they took hold of it at Davos and turned it to Davos 2021, I think it was 2021 um, conference, into a, a, a big discussion about the Great Reset. Well, look, that's okay. We're going to have a Great Reset with Aquarius. We always have a, a Great Reset when we go into a new age. But the question is how conscious we're going to be about this. And of course, the way that this term is being used is is purely materialistic and not spiritual, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> exactly, because think of the spiritual potential of something like quantum computing. Sure. And on that, quantum computing. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that um, I do understand that something could happen with quantum computing that could really take hu human consciousness into another place. And so just to go back to the way I handled it in the trilogy, and I also got into the age of Aries, which is zero AD, basically to 2000 BC. I went back a little bit to show the shift of another age. Yes. But yeah. Yeah. And so the, what I was really after is the whole issue of precessional wisdom, which is the perennial wisdom. Mm -hmm. And I've been taught, even as a child, to believe that we need to be conscious about the passions of time and we need to let go of things that we need to let go of consciously. And we need to intelligently select where we're going next. And what stopped the whole process, Rudolph, for the human um, species was Christianity. Christianity came in at the beginning of the age of Pisces, yeah. and it suppressed the precessional wisdom. It, it came in as such a powerful force, in such a controlling force, that it suppressed the wisdom of the great ages. And that is one of the things that's destroying this planet. We, we can't go along blindly the way we are. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 absolutely. One could ask, well, why has this happened? Has there been a sense to this? I agree with you what has happened, that, that this happened, but was there a sense to it that it had to happen or was it bad fate? Um, you know, boy, it's really hard to know just how intentional 
things are. Like, for example, right now, I really think that we've been living with a pandemic, and I really think it was planned a long time ago, and we don't need to talk about it. Hmm. But it's very hard to know who's doing it and how intentional they are and how directed they are. And so if we go back 2,000 years and we observe the development of the, of the, the papacy and the development of control in Rome, hmm. we see a gradual buildup of intentional control over especially the first thousand years. Hmm. And it's just simply what it would, well, first of all, they're using astrology. You know, you know, they just are. And astrology will tell you a lot about the way things are going to go. Yeah. You know? sure. and well, another reason why you chose Rome and Italy as being the place where the trilogy happens, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you notice of that, I don't know if that you uh, recall the discussion that went on with the global, you know, some of the characters are global elite characters. Pietro Pierleoni, Alessandro de' Medici. These are these are um, global elite people because mm -hmm. they're very very well to do, and they've been they've they're, this is old money too, old European money. And I thought that that discussion that went on once they got quarantined was really fascinating. Yeah. Where we we see how people like that think and why they create the way they do. And to tell you the truth, they aren't necessarily all ill-intentioned. Some of them are, you know, and some of them aren't. And and so th these are really tough questions. If, if I guess if I knew the, all the answers to these, I probably wouldn't um, even be talking today, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what happens, yeah, what happens when you write a trilogy like this, the reason it's so much fun yeah. is I couldn't wait to see what those three men would do when they were quarantined all by themselves. I didn't know what they were going to talk about. And boy, they went right for it. Okay, we used 700 years ago, we used to do this, this, and this. And now look what happened and look what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I love that. Absolutely. <laughs> I got a big bang out of that. <laughs> and writers, writers, do, writers do sit there. And, and just start laughing. Like like one of the funny moments is when I was writing Ruby Crystal, that's the mm -hmm. first one. Yeah. Um, I got to around chapter 16 or 18. And as you know, Laurent, um, Armando Pierleoni is a painter. Yes. And he's a real major abuser. And he's a very bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. And he was just headed for perdition. And I didn't know what was going to happen to him. So I sat in my office and I went, okay. Now what do I do? And the first of the two characters who weren't in the original list appeared. Lorenzo, Lorenzo Giannini appeared in my office. Now okay. the other, when these other characters came through, they didn't appear. He actually appeared, not totally solid, but partially solid. Mm -hmm. And he just said, I would like you to know that I have had Armando in analysis for me, with me, for 10 years and I'm absolutely sick of him and you better start realizing that you need to work with me to work with Armando. And 
and that changed Armando, of course, in the book. Yeah, I think chapter 18 was a book I've written with a character who's headed for hell, basically. And I didn't know he had an analyst until the analyst. Yeah, but he's an intriguing character right through the whole trilogy, Armando, right? He, yeah, I, he, he, yeah. He's no longer, longer a monster, but he stays always a bit on the, on the edge of things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a, a fascinating personality. And, we, yeah. and what happens, you do love your characters, too. Of you course. Know, you, yeah, of course. like one of the ones I really love is William. And William, mm-hmm. yeah, William Adamson. And he's yeah. one of the ones. That I, and I really have fun with him in the third book. Because he really. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I see. But that's also how you readers get to love characters because you, as a writer, loves them. And then they, you can transmit those feelings, of course. If, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So you're not going to tell us that you're going to write number four uh, in two years or so. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, yeah. you, know, and I'll, you know what? I'll bet you a whole lot of people don't know what they're going to do right now. No. Be, because, you know, because reality really did crack hmm. in uh, 2020. And that's where the astrology is so important with Saturn conjunct Pluto, like in January 2020. And um, I really, really wanted to follow that because it cracked. Hmm. And until we figure out, we're all going to put it back together again, you know? Absolutely. I have a final question for you. It might be a little bit a tricky one, but you, you were speaking about the development of, of, the, of, the, of mankind. And of course, what comes to mind is that word post-humanism or transhumanism. Both are not the same, but both are a bit going into the same direction and meaning in a way that, that consciousness goes into technical bodies, more or less, to sum it up very, very briefly and very, very easily. Um, but... Is that the way to use technology or uh, does the human being as a physical body need to survive to go into that next step of consciousness? Well, I think we're really going to have to advance our consciousness because there are issues um, with electromagnetic frequencies and technology. And not the attention is not being paid to what five, for example, what 5G is creating. And so I think that we're probably, uh, you know, we're up for some transits this year that really could put us into a major crisis, particularly the United States. And I think that things are going to develop that are going to force people to start thinking um, much more seriously about what, what we're actually creating. I don't think this rambunctious just running along and and bashing along without thinking of the consequences is, is going to work. And this yeah. is, again, where I think this interface with other dimensions and other intelligences is going to come in. But yeah. I can't imagine yeah. how it's going to work out. Yeah, no, sure. We, we all don't know. Not even you. So that that's uh, that's the bad news. Mm-hmm. And I could, I could say this, Rudolph. I can't imagine writing anything else unless I know what I want to write about. Of course. Of course. <laughs> and I think it's yeah. very difficult right now to see the future and have a sense of what we should do. Mm. Very difficult to create in this environment. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's an important issue. And that's also how many people, especially spiritually uh, inclined and sensitive people feel like that they, a lot of them feel a bit um, not lost, but holding back and waiting, right? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for a fascinating hour in your company and for making this possible. It was great to have you. Um, and I appreciate being able to talk to you very much. Thank you. Good, good luck very with important. all your projects. Yeah. And um, well, um, and uh, well, let's keep going. And um, maybe you have a final word for our audience. Um, I think that this coming year should be a meditation on free will. Hmm. We have all given up our freedom and our free will in many ways during the last couple of years. And I think it's about time to shift the dynamic. Nothing to add to that. Thank you, Barbara. the dove by our musical guests today the hills and the rivers from pittsburgh pennsylvania please go to their website thehillsandtherivers.com and find out more about them it's really really worth it and our interview guest today was barbara hand Hello, barbara uh, 
Thank you so much for being with us here today. It's a highly enlightening show today. I think just the right thing before Christmas. And uh, um, it was great to have you and uh, looking forward to your future books and presenting them here on the show. So, well, that was it for today. And, well, I need to say that was it for this year. It's December 19th, as I said. No show next week. It's Christmas and we do one week Christmas break. We'll be back right at the beginning of the coming year on January the 2nd with our episode number 18. And, um, well, I have two or three names that I'm going to announce you now. It's Christmas. I do an exception. I will announce you the three or four names for the next shows because... Um, and you will see who will be the one on the show. I've recorded already several talks. So there will, the next month or so, we'll hear people like Tamra Lucid. Tamra, who has just written that extraordinary book. I really find it extraordinary about Manly P. Hall and her time in uh, his uh, association in Los Angeles with her now husband um, back then. Uh, and it's a fascinating book, Tamara Lucid, uh, really, really great book that she wrote about uh, Manly P. Hall. And then we will have Greg Kaminsky talking about celestial intelligences. You know that he released his book uh, very recently. Thomas Negovan will talk about magic and art deco. Um, fascinating talk also, and especially fascinating ish editions and museum that he runs in Los Angeles. And there will be an academician again, uh, Carol Cossack. Carol Cossack from Australia, from Sydney. Um, and we will talk about her approach to all things magic and esoteric in a very academic way. And, well, why not? Another name that will be up in January, Mathieu Ravignard from Canada. He will talk about Martinism to us. He will talk about... Uh, the, the Memphis and Mithraim degrees are really great books about the French Gnosticism, the, the, the whole area there that he's very much a specialist in. Um, so lots of things to look forward to. Bill Mann also talking about his Albert Pipe book that he released in 2020. Lots of things to come on this show and not forget Carl Abrahamson and those of you who are looking forward to his book on Anton LaVey. Yes, we talk about that as well. Now, I told you a lot of things, not just three or four. Six names I gave you. Wow. Well, it's Christmas, right? And when I look at the list of recordings to come, I could have told you two or three more. And I have to stop now. Otherwise, no new surprises in the next year. Look forward to 2022. We all look forward to a year that hopefully will get better soon, also with that pandemic situation. It's really, really, I think, pulling on everyone's nerves, isn't it? Well, I hope that you are healthy and safe. And if you're not, well, we all wish you better health. We all wish you a good, good Christmas now and good end of the year. Not everybody is in Christmas, uh, in Christmas situation. And not everybody is, is under a tree, of course. So we all wish you a nice holiday season here. And... Um, hope that the coming year will bring a lot of interesting stuff to you, a lot of new experiences, and especially a lot of health and good times. 
And well, this was the Thought Hermes podcast, episode 17 of season 7. And this was the Thought Hermes podcast of 2021. With, we had over 120,000 listeners this year. Really great, really great. Much over 120, almost 130. So I'm stopping now, chatting too much now. All the best to all of you. See you in two weeks. And for today, I'll say, take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.